This week on Priority One, we trek out the announcement of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and Akiva Goldsman already has some comments. Sir Patrick shares some thoughts on Picard. In gaming news, Star Trek Online's Muds Market floods us with some insanely expensive choices. And our feature presentation is a sit-down with Star Trek's Jonathan Del Arco. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Command codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 461 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Your weekly recap and review of all the major news happening in the Star Trek multiverse. This episode was recorded live on Tuesday, May 19th, 2020, and available for download or streaming on Friday, May 22nd at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Tony. And filling in for Cat this week is an old friend of the show. Anthony Cox. Welcome, Anthony. It is good to be back. So I've been on a mountain retreat far on top of a mountain away from cell service and internet for the last three months. Did I miss anything? Quite a bit, sir. Quite a bit. But what's good is that not only are you filling in for Cat this week, but Anthony has also taken charge of our social media accounts. He is now our social media manager. Thank you, Anthony. You've been doing a phenomenal job over these last couple of days, especially when we never established any documentation. So you've been patient with me and you've been doing a remarkable job. Well, since you've announced it, I guess I can't quit now. That's right. <laughs> and of course, in our audio booth is our chief engineer, Skiffy. Kapla. Before we jump into the news, we want to invite you to join in on the weekly conversations, whether via social media platforms like facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast, on Twitter or Instagram at Priority One Pod, or by email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Attention, Anthony. Now, Captains, these are difficult times right now, so we understand that offering a financial contribution to support a podcast like ours may be difficult. But there are other ways that you can support this completely community-driven podcast. Remember, we're all volunteers. We do not get paid a dime for the time we spend producing this show. All the money that we earn from Patreon goes right back into production costs. So in lieu of asking you to join our other patrons on Patreon.com, we actually have another position open. We're looking for another talented volunteer to join our ranks, specifically a graphic artist. So if you dabble in digital art, love Star Trek, and would like to be a part of our team, reach out to us. Send an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. Jump what places. I don't know. Then let's check it out. So we got some interesting news over this last week about a new production. Some new show that CBS All Access is producing some something about Christopher Pike? Yeah, I think so. I think it had something to do with 
with Christopher Pike. Yeah, it does! We are getting a Pike series! Praise the great bird of the galaxy! <laughs> it features Spock and number one and the Enterprise! <laughs> sorry, sorry. On Friday, May 15th, Viacom CBS made the official announcement that Anson Mount's Christopher Pike would be getting his own series. Along with a brief description of the upcoming show titled Star Trek Strange New Worlds, we were treated to a video featuring the show's three stars, the aforementioned Mount, Ethan Peck, and Rebecca Romaine. In the video, the trio thanked fans for their continued support, and Mount promised, quote, we're going to get to work on a classic Star Trek show that deals with optimism and the future. And I guess there's only one more thing to say. Hit it. The series' executive producers include Alex Kurtzman, Akiva Goldsman, Jenny Lumet, Henry Alonso Myers, Heather Caden, and our very own Rod Roddenberry and Trevor Roth. The premiere story was hashed out by Alex Kurtzman, Akiva Goldsman, and Jenny Lumet, and Goldsman gets the screenplay credit. Star Trek's captain and man at the helm, Alex Kurtzman, said in a release, quote, When we said we heard the fans' outpouring of love for Pike, number one, and Spock when they boarded Star Trek Discovery last season, we meant it. These iconic characters have a deep history in Star Trek canon, yet so much of their stories has yet to be told. With Akiva and Henry at the helm, the Enterprise, its crew, and its fans are in for an extraordinary journey to new frontiers in the Star Trek universe, end quote. Now, no release date has been announced, but the project was given a series order, and it sounds like the premiere script is ready to go. We're getting a Pike series. How exciting is that? So how awesome is it that they actually listened to us fans? I mean, that like rarely ever happens. And now we're getting the Star Trek show that a lot of fans want to see and what everybody hoped Discovery was going to be and what everybody hoped Picard was going to be. Y yes, Spink bingo. That that second one is yeah, that's what that's where we're going with. Yeah, exactly. This is the, what they this when we back when we first started talking about Discovery on this show years and years ago now. I said, you know, don't why do this? If you're going to do this pre-Kirk time, either go all in pre-Kirk time and bring back all the old faces or leave it alone and just let it be its own thing and go off and do something different. And they mixed it all up and mashed it all up and now they're sort of taking a second bite of the apple. One of the architects of the upcoming Strange New Worlds, Akiva Goldsman, sat down with Variety to talk a bit more about the project. His goal is to hew closer to the original series. Quote, We're going to try to harken back to some classical Trek values, to be optimistic and to be more episodic. Obviously, we will take advantage of the serialized nature of character and story building. But I think our plots will be more closed-ended than you've seen in either Discovery or Picard, end quote. Goldsman continued, quote, I imagine it to be even closer to the original series than even DS9. We can really tell closed-ended stories. We can find ourselves in episodes that are tonally of a piece, end quote. But Goldsman clarified that this won't be exactly like the episodic adventures of years past, telling Variety, quote, I think one thing that we always struggled with as fans was that Kirk is heartbroken at the loss of Edith Keeler in City on the Edge of Forever and has to be just fine the next week. I think what we want to do is keep the characters having moved through and recognizing the experiences they've had in previous episodes, but to be able to tell contained episodic stories, end quote. 
For more from Goldsman and a bit from series star Ethan Peck, follow the link in our show notes. I hope to God that he sticks to what he's saying here, that we are going to see a marriage of episodic television with serialized subplots or character arcs like he said himself kirk is heartbroken at the end of city on the edge of forever and you know we never we never really revisit that in future episodes of tos and given the style of that era tos could have gone on for two or three more seasons and we still wouldn't have learned anything more about his feelings toward it and I want to give a shout out to Ken from Chicago because he put it you know, pretty nicely. He called it sandwich cereals. I tried to Google it. I didn't see that that's an official term, but it kind of makes sense, right? You think of older shows that have been successful and have run for several seasons, even the procedurals like SVU or, or Criminal Minds, and then bring it closer to home the Orville, which is very episodic, but has these strings that connect these characters throughout the, the season and the series. And so I'm really hoping that we see that with Strange New Worlds. You know, it's funny because everybody argues about, you know, Discovery not being like the other shows and whatever. And and I hope that it does come to fruition that he does stick to this because, like Elijah said, because then it sets itself apart from Discovery and then I think people will enjoy Discovery more knowing that they have a more traditional Trek show to visit. And I think that, um, I, I hope they do, you know, more of the character-driven stuff underneath being serialized and keep the sort of monster of the week or planet of the week the episode and part. it will like you said it'll differentiate this show from the other shows they've got going and that'll be that's important too because you, you one of the things that is commonly said is that people got tired of Star Trek by the time Enterprise rolled around you know there's like almost too much Star Trek going at the same time but this will make this thing a unique piece and it might be easier to catch new fans this way if they can if you can just throw on an episode or tell them just just watch season just watch episode four episode four is a good one just watch that and see if you like it and if you dig it, you can go back and watch the, all the other ones. Then you can go back and decide if you want to binge the whole thing. So I, I think, and this is going towards a library strategy for CBS, Paramount, whatever the company is going to wind up being Viacom. This will be a entry into their library that people can just like reach in like a, like a handful of Skittles, just grab it and go. No, that for me, no, I love Discovery. In fact, Discovery is possibly my favorite Star Trek show of all time. Okay. Maybe second to TNG, but okay. <laughs> but here's the thing: is that I, I think you needed to do something drastically different to reboot the having Star Trek on television. You needed something drastically different. What I love about this show is that it's it's coming from an organic place. We they, there, there was no intention to have this show when Discovery season two wrapped. But but fans want to know more about these characters. We want to revisit these characters. We want to go on these journeys with these characters. And the creative team is responding and saying, OK, let's do that. And this this show is coming from an organic place. And I think instantaneously it's going to be better and more well received just because of that. Now, imagine if you dare not only getting Strange New Worlds, but also getting the incomparable Jeffrey Combs as part of the crew. What? Star Trek Twitter presence Andorian Soup has dared to imagine just that. On May 16th, Andorian Soup, whose avatar is Shran from Star Trek Enterprise, posted a side-by-side -side photo of Jeffrey Combs and John Hoyt, the actor who played ship physician and 
Pike confidant, Dr. Philip Boyce in The Cage. The resemblance between the two actors is certainly undeniable. So what are the chances that the prolific actor could play the wise doctor? According to Combs, not high. Replying to Andorian Soup's Twitter post, Combs himself said, quote, thank you. Nice thought, but the chasm between what fans want and what studios want make the chance of it happening slim to none. And Slim left town. End quote. That doesn't mean the Star Trek veteran wouldn't be interested. When asked if he'd be open to the possibility, Combs replied, quote, Of course, I'd love Star Trek. Star Trek is life. End quote. Did he just do a Victory is Life parody? Yes, he did. <laughs> and by the way, if you want a little taste of what Jeffrey Combs would be like as Dr. Boyce, watch Transformers Prime the animated show Transformers Prime. He plays the Doctor Ratchet in that series, and he's fantastic. Oh. He would be great in this role. Well, he looks just like him. That picture, it's friggin' spooky. He's he he's been around so much Star Trek, and uh, and, and they kept inviting him back for all the serieses. So he must be okay to get along with, to work with, and get along with. People must like him. So I, I gotta say, I, he couldn't. You could do a lot worse than casting True. that guy. Well, that leads us to our first community question this week. Would you like to see Jeffrey Combs play Dr. Boyce? Let us know in the comments section for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com or by replying to our community question post on our social media channels like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Though we are obviously excited for the newly announced Strange New Worlds, there were other interesting Trek nuggets for our proverbial dipping that did not include Pike and the gang. This week, Sir Patrick Stewart sat down with Gold Derby to discuss his experience with his Trek offering, Star Trek Picard. Sir Patrick reiterated his initial hesitation for playing the legendary captain again, but revealed that he thought season one may be his last time doing so. Stewart recalled reading the script for the series finale, saying... The writers had been a little bit undercover about that aspect of how series one was going to end. I learned it from reading the script. And when I saw that Picard collapsed and died when he was on that alien planet, I thought, oh my Lord, I'm being written out of the show. I only make it to the end of season one. And then, of course, I survived and came back. But now, with an artificial life inside me, not a subservient, cruel one like the Borg. Well, we shall see. We don't know how Picard is going to live with this new condition that has become part of his life. Stewart also teased what's to come in season two, telling Gold Derby, quote, There are startling events predicted in season two. I'm so excited about them because it is taking season one on from where we were. We're not going to be covering the same ground. And it's going to be, um, I think, extraordinary. I'm very excited about it. For a full link to the video interview, be sure to check out the show notes. I want Rescue Rangers. I want Captain Picard's (laughs) Rescue Rangers. I think we're seeing a lot of this existential, what is the soul what is artificial intelligence and how does artificial intelligence play into elongating our lives? I mean, Hulu, I believe, was the one who just released a new show called uh, Upload. Then you have Devs, which was an Amazon Prime show that also starred Alison Pill. There's a lot of this, you know, can... can Altered Carbon. Altered Carbon. 
the concept of these certain sci-fi franchises is that you never die. You can be uploaded. Your consciousness could be uploaded. One of the things that Akiva Goldsman said in an interview after season one was that the whole reason why they put Picard in the body is because they wanted to show that the synths were marginalized and what better way to show them as equals than to put the most human character in Star Trek into a synthetic body. Now, that's wonderful and that made me relook at the at the finale in a whole new light. I wish they would have communicated that in the episode because I felt like that was not strongly communicated to me. So I, I'm hoping that that's what they're referring to when they're talking about how things continue in season two, that it's more about, you know, the, the, the synths fighting for equality and not being so marginalized and Picard being a spokesperson or, or something along those lines. I'm hoping that that's where they're going with this, but I, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Jake, our producer, gave to have a great line when we talked about Strange New Worlds in our chat. He said, it's episodic TV with a memory, right? Like it, it's, it's, shows that are encapsulated, but if you're watching continuously, you'll catch bits and pieces that you know refers back to this thing that happened. And so maybe they, maybe we'll get a show about them rescuing a synth someplace, and everyone will kind of look over to Picard and he'll go, well, I got a few things to say about that. You know, it, it, you know, it'll refer to itself, but it won't be about that. It won't be, that won't be the th- main thrust of things. That's the entire thread of Picard's uh, Borg history. Like, Anytime the board come up. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, I've got some insight on that. Well, Captains, those are all the major headlines to report this week in Star Trek. Now, I'm pleased to welcome our very special guest. On screen. Captains, on this episode of Priority One, we are thrilled to have with us Star Trek The Next Generations and Picard's Hugh. Jonathan Del Arco. Jonathan, thank you so very much for joining us this week. My pleasure. How are you guys? Cannot complain. I am, you know, I am really excited to to have you on because you're actually our first Star Trek actor, our first Star Trek guest who is also a Latino. And it has been so refreshing for me to finally see more and more representation. I'm I'm first generation Cuban American and watching you, watching Wilson Cruz, uh Santiago Cabrera on Star Trek and getting screen time, getting bringing the attention needed has been phenomenal. Well, you know, as a Cuban American, uh, Nick Zayas wrote my big episode on Picard and he's Cuban American as well. Get out of here. No, and Nick Nick used to write on major crimes. He actually has written my character quite often. And he bases it a lot on his relationship with his own dad, which is very sweet. And he and his dad used to watch Star Trek Next Gen together. The, the dad, I guess, used to say, Vamos a ver al calvito. Let's go look at the bald one. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. their term for Next Gen was el calvito, the bald one, which I think is adorable. Oh. Uh, but he brought his dad to the premiere in L.A. And I already had met his dad before, but uh, it was it was quite fun. So we have a nice Latino intersection there. And yeah, you know, it's a very interesting thing because so much of the work on Picard, in particular to do with the Borg, had to do with, for 
myself, it, it, it was very reminiscent of, of the migration issues we're having at the border and the demonization of people seeking refuge, people seeking a better life. So there was a lot, I think, of pathos to that, you know, to being Latino, to finding a new home in America, you know, that always resonated for me as, as a Borg and as this character. So it was great to represent, you know? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a real, been a real pleasure to be a part of the, the Star Trek family uh, as a Latino. You know, uh, there, there aren't many of us, so <laughs> I'm fortunate, yeah. You know, and I, I found Star Trek has always been quite forward-thinking and knows how, has known rather in the past, how to really address those socio-political, socio-economic issues that, uh, that happen representation for Latinos, I've felt, has been lacking in Trek. Yeah. When you think back at, at the last 60 years, you know, TOS came out of the, the gate running. But then, you know, as I rewatch episodes and I rewatch series, I find myself going, oh, look, there's Gonzalez. Oh, he's a red shirt. He's going to die. <laughs> oh, don't get us started. Don't get us started. Well, I'm technically a red shirt too. Ah, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am. <laughs> well, this show, you know, I'm wearing I'm wearing a red shirt right now. It, and I actually wore it as subliminal hint to the fans when we did our electronic interview package. Oh. A grievous error. A grievous error on the part of the writers, as I think I speak for all of us here. But don't worry, it's sci-fi. I'm sure Hugh downloaded himself into something and is backed up somewhere. I'm, I'm positive. Listen, I keep telling the fans if they want to bring me back, they more than can figure it out. It's a matter of, of them wanting to. You know what I mean? So that's... Well, Star Trek can be like Star Wars. No one's ever truly gone. That's right. And the other thing is, if you do voiceover work, uh, we are very friendly with the folks over at Cryptic Studios who develop a massively multiplayer online game uh, called Star Trek Online. Yeah. And they do a really good job at, you know, these continuing stories, so to speak, filling in, filling in these gaps. So I haven't heard from them yet, even though this seems to be a, a good... There's a lot of story in the new sort of Borg and Hugh life that hasn't been mined yet. And uh, I think it'd be a fascinating game. Absolutely. And in fact, when you showed up, we knew that you were going to be on Picard. Everyone that plays the game was like, oh, please let us have Hugh come back to the <laughs> game. That would be amazing. I've never done Hugh for a game, actually. I've done other characters for Star Trek games, but never Hugh. I think for Star Trek Online, they had like a cutscene that was supposed to be Hugh, but there was no voice. So it was like, oh, maybe that maybe that could have been Hugh and that would have been fantastic. But oh, man, Every, <laughs> everyone that that we play with uh, had said that. Uh, well, maybe I'll come to a game soon. Before we ask many of our other questions, uh, I do want to ask one that we received quite a bit from our patrons and our listeners. Talk to us a little bit about returning to the set of a Star Trek production. I mean, it must have been surreal, right? What was the differences, what were the differences between, you know, what you experienced years ago? And I, you know, I know it's been quite a bit now, but yeah. but, but comparatively, the, the different environments, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, look, the, going on the original Next Gen set was thrilling to begin with, right? Because, uh, you know, back in the day, even back then, it, they were closed sets, so no one could get on them. So if you were a fan, like I was, of Star Trek, the idea of getting to be on the show and getting to be on those sets and then getting to work with those actors was just like, pinch me. So that, you know, and for its day, Next Gen's budget was really huge. I mean, I think 
I think they were like $2 million an episode at the time, which if you think about it, that's a lot of money for that time. This set and this experience was, I would say, 20 times bigger in terms of scale, scope, storytelling, cinematography, costumes. I mean, there were days where there would be 100 to 200 extras dressed in full Romulan or Borg uh, makeup and hair and costuming. It was just astonishing. I mean, it was mind-bending to feel like you had any part at all of something so big, much less a really significant part. As an actor, that's really fun to be on a set like that that is so uber big and just so uh, ma massive in every imaginable way. It just makes it more fun and more exciting. The more artisans that are involved, the more makeup and hair people, the more set designers, you know, the more partners you have in creating something like that. It's a much more, it's a much more fun circus, you know, than if it's a tiny one. But by no means was next gen tiny. It's just comparatively speaking, you know, it's a little bit of apples to oranges. Felt super excited, thrilled, pinch me kind of vibe. Certainly the first few times I went out there, even before we started shooting for rehearsals or to try wardrobe. It's an exciting time last year. Very, very exciting. Do you remember from TNG and then again from Picard, do you remember that first table read? Was there a table read for TNG? And then you know, what was that like versus Picard's? Funny, I never thought about that. There was not a table read for TNG, which I find odd. There was a table read for Picard and that was crazy. I mean, that was... <laughs> the table read for Picard was surreal because it was a super secret project. There was no leaks at all as to who from the original cast was coming back. So there was all this secrecy. You know, we, we pulled into the CBS studios. We were like in a secret room. There were about a hundred top brass from CBS that were there to watch the table read. Patrick had his, his communicator button pinned shipped from London so we could all hold it for good luck. I saw Patrick and Brent again. I mean, it was just an overload of sensations and emotions, you know. But for Next Gen, we didn't, uh, I, I remember auditioning, getting the job, doing, going to my fittings, you know, getting the makeup test done and all that that took about a week. And then being thrown into my first scene, just uh, summarily. <laughs> this may seem like a silly question, but I would presume you did not have to audition for Hugh for, for Picard, right? I mean, that's one of those phone calls where they say, we want you back, and do you have that availability? Instead of recasting, God forbid. Yeah, so the whole Hugh return of it all was something that I was privy to factually, actually, before Patrick even signed on. We didn't know. We didn't know at the time that it was going to be a... They didn't, Patrick had said no so many times that I think they, they probably had a plan B of how to do a show without him that would be something different, obviously. But the Borg storyline and my and Jerry's involvement was from very early inception when they were, when Alex and James Duff, and I don't know if Shabon was on board yet. I think Akiva was. It was just a small group of them, Kristen Beyer. I think they were all on board at that time. They were hashing it out. And because I had a previous relationship with James Duff, because I did a show of his for 10 years, he was very keen on working with me and Jerry. And, you know, we're all friends and we all love working together. I'm assuming it was him who um, pitched it, you know, to Alex. And so 
the conversation had started really early on and then it kind of sat in the water for a while and then Patrick announced that he was coming back and then there was months of writing so I wasn't really quite sure where the pieces would fall into place early on I wasn't sure if I was to be a series regular there wasn't a lot of clarity in terms of like how far along the story I would be in how involved I would be uh, and of course it was all secret so we weren't told any of that we were told in very general strokes about our characters before we signed on but we did not really know anything like no script we didn't know what our characters were going to be doing I didn't know I was getting killed. None of that was was something we knew. So, um, surprise. <laughs> when did you actually find that out? Um, I found that out probably exactly a year ago this week because I I think I I'd wrapped I think I'd wrapped my first episode in early May and around this time I had like 3 weeks off because we we're shooting uh, episodes back to back. Two episodes back to back, so so one sort of session of episodes would last over a month of filming. So I was done with my first session of episodes, and then my next one was coming up in a month. And so I I got I got a script. I think I got a I got a script out of order that I wasn't supposed to be reading. I guess I don't know. Someone sent me the script, and I read it, and was like, oh sh. Um, you know, and, you know, of course, they all called me at that point when they knew I'd read it and like, we're sorry, you weren't supposed to read it. Uh, but, um, yeah, I didn't really know. But then I had about a month to kind of process that because it was obviously incredibly disappointing and heartbreaking. So I had a month to kind of like process that, get in the right headspace to, to go finish the other two episodes I had left. Um, so that's that's how it rolled. <laughs> so we're going to come back to that in a little while, I think. But let's I want to ask you about uh, you and Jerry Ryan, because she's the other uh, actor that came back to a Borg role after being away from, from a lot of years. Did you guys get together and kind of compare notes on that and, and figure out where you guys would be uh, 20 years later or whatever? Yes. Well, you know, there wasn't a ton of specifics about in the scripts what exactly had transpired for either of our characters, right? So we did calls with Kristen Beyer, who knows, she's like the oracle of Star Trek. She knows a lot of canon. She used to write books, Trek books. So she knows she knows a lot of like canon things and she knows a lot of like the literature that easily you could use as motivation as an actor. And we had conversations with her about what might have happened. How did she see we might have ended up in this situation? And like, she really helped clarify that for us in terms of our acting work, you know, what motivated us to be at this place. Because I really wasn't sure after, even after reading the first episode of mine, I really wasn't sure if he was a villain or not. Because there was a lot of ambiguity about how he, I couldn't wrap my head around how someone would make that kind of deal with the devil, right? How someone would, would say, okay, you're not going to kill my people, but I'm going to let you harvest their parts, right? Like, I couldn't like get my emotional head around that because it, it just didn't seem right you know and then i got a set tour and the cube the borg cube reminded me so much of the concentration camps in auschwitz and such that i was like um i'm gonna do some holocaust research because this is how this is feeling to me and as i'm doing holocaust research and doing research on you know i did a lot of uh the shoah foundation has a lot of interviews with holocaust survivors one of the things i realized like not in the not in the camps but definitely in the ghettos even 
the imprisoned had representation. So they had someone, you know, let's say you know, it was a camp with Jewish with Jews, there would be one assigned representative that would sort of deal with the politics and like deal with the Nazis. It sounds crazy, but they'd actually existed as a leadership format where there was someone who was an actual prisoner who was a go-between between the powers that be and the rest of the prisoners. And I was like, okay, I can kind of get my head around that, that he's doing it because he's like, oh my God, we're all gonna die or worse. So let me make it as good as I can for everybody. But Jerry was a little panicked because her first script was the tone of her character and the voice of her character was incredibly modernized. And she she talks about how wigged out she was. And I, I kind of forced myself on her. I was like, look, I just filmed for a week. Let me come over and talk and read it with you. She goes, no, 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 no. I'm like, let's just read the scene together. So I went over her house. She cooked for me. We read and read and read and read it. And she was so frustrated. And I finally said, hey, what if Seven feels like she has to modernize the way she speaks so she can fit in, which immigrants do all the time, and so that she's not a target. And she was like, what? That's brilliant. And so she just did it. And I was like, yep, there she is. That That's all you have to do, you know? And uh, and she was home, home safe. <laughs> so Hugh had this sort of middle part that you kind of helped define, right? When we first meet Hugh, he's just coming to terms with being an individual after never having done that before. And then the next time we see him in the next uh, episode of uh, Next Generation, about a year later or so, he's kind of underground being a leader and an advocate, you know, yeah. uh, you know, hiding really from, the, like you're saying, the powers that be. And then finally, when we get to Picard, he is out front. You know, he's he's he is a figurehead. Uh, he's a Federation citizen that went there and is, is being that role. Do you draw parallels in your own life, you know, as, as an advocate with your work in, in real life? Sure. It was no accident that James Duff wrote this part for me. I was one of the writers. Uh, he knows me extremely well. So the hue that became in Picard harkens back a lot to my own personal life experience in terms of having lived as a gay man through the worst of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, losing partners and friends over that time period, you know, feeling a, a certain amount of scarring emotionally from my life, you know, and my own experiences, including being an immigrant, was not easy coming to a new country at 10. And so all of that in my own advocacy for LGBT rights and immigrant rights, all of that fits into my own personality and into my own sense of who I am. So it made it a lot easier to dip into that. And when we were discussing like how he ended up on the cube, the things we discussed are, you know, that the idea is that that colony of, of XBs succeeded in having their own planet that became Federation protected and that the Federation came to me to see if I would be the mediator of this cube, you know, 15 years ago. And that for a lack of there being anyone else that could do it, I said yes. And clearly Seven's path is completely different because she's a vigilante. I'm not, I'm a pacifist, right? I'm super fascinated and I think it would be a great show. The, the what of it all that happened to Seven and Hugh 
because clearly they have some kind of relationship we know nothing about. If she's willing to fly, you know, clear across the galaxy to protect him, having given him that chip, right? So, um, oh, that's where the chip came from. Because that was not clear on the show. That was not clear on the show. It's not. If you watch it again, you will see that her first lines when she gets on the cube is. Where's Hugh? Right. You know. But yeah, but yes. they didn't connect the chip to that. I had that was a question we asked on the show, on our show. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the chip was I mean in editing it might have been lost, but in the original script, you know, uh Elnor is crying and he looks up at the desk and sees that chip is hanging from a spot and that it's clearly Hugh's chip to use. And so that connective tissue of, of seven and Hugh is to me really fascinating and it's not anything we've explored yet but you know there's always an opportunity in other venues to explore that you know i would love to see that me too it'd be fun talking a little bit more about you know the impact that your own life has had and and, and your advocacy when you approach a role or to, and take on a role rather do you try to inject a little bit of your own culture into the role even if it's not necessarily written out in the in the script. What I what I tend to do is when I get a, even an audition for a part, right? When you're still in the early process of figuring out if you're going to get the part, the first thing I do is read it. I want to know if when I'm reading it, I can hear the voice of the character, right? That's where I go. I, I go. I, I, I listen to things the character says, the, the description of other people, the relationships the character has with other people. And I look at that and I think of it, is that like me or not like me? That's the first thing that I do. And I go, well, how would I respond in that situation? Like, how, how do I make this the most me that I can? And when it's not close to who I am, then I usually think, have I lived with someone or have I witnessed or experienced dying, for example, right? I've never died, thank God, but I've been around people that have died. So I've, you know, I've cared for someone that died when I was in my 20s and I understand what people that are dying normally wish for. And that isn't to cry. They wish to make sure the people that are being left behind are gonna be okay. So they handle their death by cracking a joke or saying something sweet to the person they're leaving behind. So I just go to like the things I know. That's how I start. And then if it gets really, really like I can't break through somehow, I don't really understand the character at all. I do a lot of research on things around the character to see if there's anything in that world that I can connect with. The more I can use myself, the better the performance usually ends up being. You know, while we're on the topic of script analysis and, and approaching a character, I recall when Sir Patrick Stewart uh, was filming Macbeth and he was talking about it, there was this, a particular scene. It was the, the scene where he orders the murder of, of uh, Banquo. And I remember him talking about how he struggled with that scene because he didn't necessarily know what to do with his body. He didn't know what to, what to move and how to go to the next beat. And the director said, make a sandwich. <laughs> Have you, did you experience a similar moment like that in Picard? And if so, how did you approach it? In early rehearsing for Picard, Hanalee Culpepper, our director, we we're trying to figure out who he was, right, in Picard, because you could go a million ways. The last time you saw me, I was still in my full Borg body, right? I, I wasn't humanized at all. And so, that costume informed a lot of the movement in, in terms of the movement being robotic. It's a little bit like, well, that's all I could move because it was so cumbersome. And now I'm in a new costume, which wasn't that way at all. It was much more comfortable. So 
I worked on trying to find physicality that tied the performance in some way. So almost subliminally, someone watching it could see Hugh in me, even though I looked completely different. So I, I worked on that piece of it. But sometimes magic happens, you know, like when I was working on at home, working on rehearsing the scene where she tortures my ex-bees and kills them in front of me. I remember the script, like I didn't have many lines in that scene. It was all react reactive, you know. So what I worked on instead of learning lines is learning what she was doing to me. And I remember being in my office and the description said, you know, he walks over to the pile of dead bodies and falls to his knees, just crumbles to his knees. I, I did it in my office. I went, I crumbled to my knees and I was overcome by this deep anguish. And I just started sobbing in my office. I was just inconsolable. And I thought, whoa, well, that would be good if I could get that on set. Like that, that would be a really <laughs> cool moment. Where's the camera? Where's the camera now? Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with yeah. that. Cause you know, the minute you think of it, you're like, <laughs> now you're really screwed up cause you're, it's never going to happen. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to shoot for that. That's kind of like where I hope I go, but I'm not going to commit to it because I don't want to fake cry, you know? And I already decided I wasn't going to cry while I died. I was like, there are things I don't want to do. I don't think people cry when they die. People make other people feel better when they die. So I was like, I'm not going to make my death schmaltzy, but if I'm going to have emotion in any scene, it's this one and it came organically so we were in rehearsal it was my last day on the show and I was already feeling pretty emotional because I'd, I'd had an eye infection that week I almost couldn't shoot the scene they had to remove the contact lens and CGI it so I was already pretty rattled and it was I was already emotional that it was my last day that I was done with all my scenes with Patrick so I was already pretty raw and so I, I we went up to rehearse it and sure as day I go to my knees and that sob comes over me and it's uncontrollable. We rehearsed and the director's like, great. I'm like, I don't know that I can do that in every take. He's like, it's not a problem. And I look up and Patrick's there. He, Patrick came to the set to say goodbye because he's just that kind of guy. You know, he, he wasn't even working that day. He drove all the way up to Santa Clarita to say goodbye to me. So I was really emotional that day. Aww. I know. And so I, um, I thought, well, I want to stay in the space. So I kind of put headset on and stayed in an, a really raw emotional space for about seven hours. And the upshot of that is every take we did of that scene, including when they shot my back, <laughs> I cried. <laughs> and the director kept coming up and saying, Doug was like, you don't need to do that when I'm on your back. And I was like, you know what? If I stop, it may not come back. So let's just do it, you know? <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm really happy. It's, the scene got chopped up a little bit. It was much longer before and much more torturesome. But I, I was very happy with that work. I cried the whole time, so. Oh, good. You know. <laughs> just, oh, good. Yeah. I made you cry. <laughs> I was just devastated. <laughs> it's brutal. I know. It's so, it was so brutal it was just devastating to watch him just no no it was just oh gut-wrenching it was a gut-wrenching scene and actually it turned out to be a gut-wrenching episode with the Riker Marina return um I watched that on my laptop with Jerry and my husband Kyle in Puerto Rico we had we had gone on a Star Trek cruise uh right before COVID like right before like early March and my death episode which was a big big secret hadn't dropped yet and it was about to drop on the cruise ship and we were we were done we were only going to do three days on the cruise so we were in Puerto Rico we got a nice hotel we we did our own little 
two day getaway. And on that next morning was my my episode. So we we all three sat in our pajamas watching and crying. As did everyone else on that ship. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, the ship, that ship took on water. <laughs> it took on water, yeah. Some of us are a little more angry. Some of us are a little more angry about it. Yes, that's true. Well, Marina's, Marina's work alone was like, I mean, talk about an epic fan episode. You kill Hugh. And then you find out Marina and Riker's kid is dead. <laughs> You're like, what? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. But it was a wonderful episode, I thought. I remember seeing the pictures of that cruise, and I was like, wow, that really looked fun. It was. Though I just found out. This is very funny. So we, Jerry, Kyle, and I had decided we were going to just do three days. It was my birthday week, so we were going to do Puerto Rico and to, like, vacation, right? First three days were great. Like, we had a blast. The COVID of it all was, I mean, we were all, no one was shaking hands. Everyone was Purelling and washing their hands. And But honestly, it felt like all of that was like in Asia. And so we weren't really freaked out. We were like, oh, let's find out where the ship has been. And we're like, we're fine. Like we were not freaked out. But apparently right after we left Puerto Rico is really when other cities and states started shutting down. And I think uh, people that were left on the ship, I've, to- I've been told as much that those next three or four days where people were really panicked on the ship and they were apparently every time they would dock they were like shoo we're not quarantined yet you know like because they were afraid if if anyone got sick on the ship they would have been quarantined on the ship which would have been awful you know yeah so we really dodged the bullet frankly <laughs> wow yeah speaking of you know the cruise and and the fan activities uh your return as Hugh was warmly welcomed by the community as a whole. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what was your experience, um, you know, engaging with fans uh, throughout the years and and currently with your, if you've been able to during your work on Picard? So that was a joy because the idea, first of all, of bringing back a recurring guest star and not, not all the series regulars from Next Generation could have elicited a lot of angry fan response, you know? Like, why him and not so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? But I was kind of blown away, especially after Comic-Con, uh, when we announced the floodgate of excitement about Hugh coming back, and Hugh and Seven, frankly, uh, the two of us coming back, like the kind of love that we got and how so many of the fans that have been, you know, I've been really lucky that Hugh had this little cult following early on on Next Gen. You know, I was doing conventions from day one that I, you know, year one of Next Gen, I was out there doing conventions because Hugh had captured the imagination of the fans. And um, I was just fun to like, to like realize that I'd had this comeback moment and that in a way it was bigger than when I first started and more significant. And the fans that have always been so supportive of my career and excited for me were just there to enjoy it, you know, and, and celebrate it. So that was fantastic. And then, you know, we did, uh, leading up to the premiere, we did a Comic-Con in Brazil, which was fantastic. And then we did uh, the premiere in London and in Germany, and there were a lot of fans there. So we got to go out on the line and, you know, I, I signed hundreds of photographs and things that they were, that they brought to 
us. And uh, it was just a really great community, you know? And uh, I'm a little bummed because I had a ton of really fun conventions lined up this year that are probably now all getting canceled. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to wait on my love tour for when this is over to be able to go back to conventions and talk about, you know, the car <laughs> and you, you know? It'll still be there, don't worry. I know, I mean, look, I've been I've been at it for 30 years. The, the excitement won't go away, you know? So. The, the love's not going away, right? No, no, so yeah. So you mentioned, you know, you travel the world at these at the conventions. You mentioned Brazil. You know, I'm curious as a Latino when you visit Latin speaking countries, span you know, Spanish speaking countries. What is that experience like between yourself and those Trek fans versus if you're in a predominantly English speaking country? Because, you know, like I've tried joining Facebook groups for Spanish Star Trek fans and I find they're kind of, they're, they're almost hard to find. Now, mind you, Brazil is, I don't know, Portuguese there, but you know, I, I found that it's kind of hard to find the Latino community behind Star Trek. Like, where, where is everybody? It actually is. I mean, look, I had been, I went to a convention in Puerto Rico early in the early days that the fans there were all, you know, Puerto Rico's America. So, I mean, there's obviously a Latino culture in Puerto Rico, but, you know, they're all English speaking and a lot of service members as well. And then Brazil was, yeah, Portuguese. And there were some other, you know, from Latin America, but that con was so massive. Like it's like San Diego that it's really not the same as a Star Trek convention when you actually get to talk to the fans. Like we didn't do a photo line for that. We didn't do an autograph session for that. So I didn't really really get to, you know, press the flesh in terms of meeting the Latino fans. I mean, I've met many over the years, or many have reached out to me through social media. I know there's a big group in Buenos Aires, and I just don't think there's a ton of next Star Trek cons in Latin America. No, I, you know, and it's funny, I've been re-watching TNG on Blu-ray uh, with my girlfriend, and we've been doing it with Spanish subtitles and uh, Spanish dubbing, which is a remarkable adventure, and I encourage you to try to experience it oh. because it's actually interesting. One, how you know how things translate for Star Trek, right? There's so much Trek no babble, and then sometimes the dub will say one thing, and it's it's definitely Spaniard. It's it's definitely Castellano Spanish kind of thing, and then the the subtitle itself would be different. It'll be some you know it doesn't really translate well enough. If you have some spare time and you have uh, your hands on a Star Trek Blu-ray DVD. You should give it a shot. That's fun. In addition, you'll have the added bonus of hearing somebody else's voice on your character, which I think would be the the weirdest thing to so weird. And I, um, you know, when when it was announced that he was coming back, it was funny because I got a lot of tweets and stuff from like Japan and other countries. And I guess the word Hugh is different in every culture. Like I, I think in Japan the character is blue. I don't know why. What the pun on that is, but the like the word blue. Yeah. So apparently in Italy it's something else. It's different. It's not Hugh everywhere, which I find to be really funny because that's a whole pun on the U, right? And it's like yeah, the translation doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I don't know what they're looking at when they're saying blue, but. <laughs> it's very jarring to hear who in Spanish as you're watching it in the dub, right? It's just so, it's it's not as. Who, yeah. Yeah, it's who. They just go who. And so the whole episode 
Um, yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, I encourage you. It should be Ugo. It should be I thought like, so too. Uh, Ugo. I thought Ugo. so too. It's H is silent in Spanish. You had a long run in, in TV on a crime unit. I think you played a, a medical examiner. Uh, and one of your co-stars on that show was Mary McDonald. Yes. She was on Battlestar Galactica. I know. And early in your career, you worked with James Edward Almost. Yes. Who uh, you, I think you had a guest spot on Miami Vice. Yeah. So you hung out with some sci-fi royalty. I know. Am I missing people? Who else have you sort of like, you know, anybody, any more dirt, any more scoops? Well, my scene with Whoopi, yeah. Yeah, okay, right. Uh, actually, we had a lot of um, un- made the show. Uh, it was two shows. Uh, one was a spinoff. It was uh, Major Crimes and The Closer. Uh, and I was on that for a total of 10 years. And James Duff, the creator and writer, also wrote the pilot for Picard, one of the writers. He was a big Trek fan. So he hired a lot. I feel like he hired a lot of, of Trek, a lot of Trek guest stars throughout the years. And I mean, when you watch Next Gen, and as I did last year to prepare, I watched the entire series you realize how many well-known and amazing guest stars that show had. I mean, you're like, oh my God, that person was a guest star and that person, it was kind of astonishing how many actors had done Next Generation, how many well-known actors had been on it. There have been a lot of sci-fi actors that I've done other shows with. Uh, it's always fun when you meet them at a convention and you realize that you're all part of the same, the same deal, you know? I had a question just generally. Um, had you always wanted to be an actor? What brought you into acting? I was curious. You know, it's hard to say because a as a very small child, I was very peculiar in that I loved entertaining. I liked, loved making people laugh and entertaining people. My uncle had in Uruguay, had a big, lived out in a ranch out in the middle of nowhere. He had like, you know, you know what gauchos are? They're like cowboys in South America. Lots of gauchos out there and cattle. And he, and he owned a, uh, on his land, he owned like a general store and a bar. And I remember I was all of seven and I used to have, I used to know all these dirty jokes and I'd go into the bar and I would, there's nothing funnier than a cute kid telling a dirty joke. I think it's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd go in and I'd like sort of tell these dirty jokes to these drunks, you know, the drunk, you know, gauchos and I would make money. I was getting tipped. They were like, oh my God, this kid swore up and down. This is hilarious. They give me money. And so I started making money, like telling dirty jokes. And I was like, okay, this is, this is a good way to live. And then I had, you know, I used to do these puppet shows with my sister's dolls when I was little. And they were all like, I would take like the neighbors that were most obscure and weird. And I would like spoof them with the dolls. I would do like little shows that adults found incredibly entertaining. (laughs) So that's kind of how I was like, I like entertaining. I like making people laugh. I like being the center of attention. I like all those things. So obviously as you get a little older and you discover theater and school or plays and you try and you go, oh, I'm good at this. You know, you realize you just gravitate toward the things you're good at, you know? And I was just not good scholastically. I was never a very good student. The fact that I was so good in my plays, I think people encouraged me to pursue it because frankly, I wasn't that good at anything else. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, you know, you, you know, Latino families can be, can take an approach to a pursuit in the performing arts quite differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember my, you know, my family has always encouraged me and, and you know, 
pushed me to go for my degree in theater and, and audition whenever I can and whatnot, you know, but it's not the same for everybody. And if it's not too personal, your family was supportive. Is, is that what you were saying? Yeah. I mean, I feel like my older sister was always like, you better have something to fall back on, you know, because she thought it was a pipe dream. My, and I was very close to her. So, but of course I didn't listen. I got mad at her for her thinking I wasn't talented enough. <laughs> What's really fun is I, I got to take her to the premiere in London. That was the first like big red carpet thing I got to do with her because she lives in London with her family and husband. So that was, a, that was super fun to take her to that. Um, but yeah, my, my mom was, definitely supportive. I think my mom would have loved, both my parents would have probably loved to have been actors. They were both in the hair styling business. Yeah, they were generally supportive of me doing whatever my dream was. And, you know, there was really no, like, you have to go to college and you have to. They were not those kinds of parents. They wanted you to figure it out. And, uh, like, my brother went into the Marines. I became an actor. My other two sisters went deep into university. So we all had very different paths, and they were very uh, supportive of each of us. And do you uh, still stay in touch with family and in uh, Uruguay? Yeah, well, my parents have passed. And so all I really have now are my siblings, my two sisters and brother. And so they are, they're kind of scattered. My sister lives in LA, my other brother lives in Florida, and my other sister lives in London. So we Zoom a lot. And I have family in Uruguay that, you know, I went to visit about six or seven years ago and reconnected with a lot of them. It's more like cousins and aunts at this point. There's not that many of the people I grew up with, you know, because I was pretty young when I moved here. But it's nice to have Uruguay as a as a potential future home someday. I don't rule that out. Do you think they'd let you still tell dirty jokes in the bar? I think they would. Okay, good. <laughs> Uruguay is cool. <laughs> Uruguay is very chill. So I think they would be fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a little bit ago, we were talking about uh, your experience on the cruise and then you know of course it was i think the cruise ended a week before everything was on lockdown yes i've noticed that the entertainment industry as a whole isn't really getting the spotlight that it deserves in with respect to how it's going to treat production moving forward with COVID 19. as an actor right as things start to open up and productions start to ramp up again what do you think about, what are you thinking about in terms of safety, in terms of approach? Because, you know, whether it's stage, whether it's film, it's close quarters. You know, you're using this on stage, you're using the same prop day and night after night. It's going to be tricky, you guys. Well, it's frightening because you're going to have to adapt and change a lot of things that are you know, that you're just used to, you know, eating communal eating, being in a trailer, things that are rife for people touching your things, you know, props, like you were saying. I think you, before you go back to an environment like that, you have to make sure that the pandemic is under control, which it isn't yet. You know, you still have hundreds of cases cropping up that doesn't make anyone feel comfortable being in any kind of close proximity to anyone. So until there's a vaccine, the, at the very least, you've got to have the city that you live in has to have the spread under some level of protection, right? On top of that, I think you're going to have to test people as they come in for work every day. I don't think there's any way around that. Not just your temperature, but your positive rate or not. Just minimize exposure. I think shows are going to have to streamline how many people are on a set. I'm afraid that a lot of my fellow union members that are that are what they call atmosphere, which used to be called extras, I 
think that they're going to suffer a lot because my guess is, like I was saying earlier, you're not going to be able to have 200 aliens in a in a background scene. It's not going to be feasible to test that many people that are coming and going from a set. So it's going to have to be way more controlled, a lot less characters, frankly, less jobs for people because you're going to want an environment that's not out of control. You know, on a set with 300 people, you just need one that's sick and you're all screwed. You know, you got to hope that there's going to be better treatment for this, that we're that we'll be able to get the spread choked down the way New Zealand did uh, and then proceed with caution. Like once you do that, like once L.A. is in a place where there's just a few cases a day, if you've got that already as the foundation, then you could say, OK, knowing that if we all wear masks when we're not acting like you know, take them all off only for the scenes, you know, try to avoid love scenes, try to avoid things that are too close to each other, you know, they're going to have to adapt all that, you know, to make us safe. But of course, I want to go back to work. I'm, I mean, I it's sad to think that it's going to take any longer than it's already taken. I know I'm hearing some rumbles that a lot of production isn't going to come back until January because they, they're afraid that if they figure out all these ways to like circumvent what happening and go back to production in September, say, and there's a second wave, then you're just shutting it down again. So maybe waiting for that second wave to happen in January. I don't know. There's a lot we don't know, frankly, but it, may, it does make me very sad. I think of theater. I mean, you know, my experience is, has been always been on stage. I've never done film work. You know, we were talking about this a few days ago. You know, you look at a show like Mandalorian that was filmed almost entirely on green screen in a dome, a green screen dome, so to speak. So some technologies will, will help for sure. And instances like this but yes but you're not going to get that in theater you're not going to get that in live performance and then on top of that you have an audience that you know if I, I, you go into a new york theater those chairs are practically on top of each other so it's something to think about I mean, people are home they're consuming content and you know it's an industry that that is that is certainly needed so Jonathan, you're very much an activist. And as we draw this interview to a close, I certainly want to draw attention to that. You know, I, on Twitter right now, I know you keep your ear very close to the ground with respect to how COVID-19 is being treated. You also, you host your own podcast, Hollywood Caucus. How can people follow you? How can people support your causes that you support? So we started a podcast in January called Hollywood Caucus. And the idea behind that was this notion that we are as entertainers or sports figures constantly told to just shut up and do our thing right just shut up and shut up and act shut up and play football don't take a stand how dare you and my philosophy and my co-host tara carson's philosophy is you i mean it's like you don't tell the plumber how to that he can't have a political opinion you don't tell a doctor they can't you can't you don't tell any other profession they can't have an opinion i pay taxes i'm a citizen i do a lot of things for my community i have a voice and so i'm going to use my voice and so our show is a humorous way like we talk about people's careers and about politics but the idea is to like give voice to people in the entertainment industry to talk about their issues so you could find that where you, where you get your podcast it's called hollywood caucus um you could follow me on twitter or instagram or facebook and i'm at Jonathan Del Arco. It's very simple. I just did a promotional video for the Human Rights Campaign 
which is my organization of choice. They have a, a really cool puzzle that they're giving away when you join as a member. A lot of these organizations, you know, rely on big galas to raise their funds and that's all gone. That's not coming back for a while. There aren't going to be banquets, you know, with people, with hundreds of people. So this is a fundraiser for them that I did and I'll be posting that on my Twitter account and Instagram when it's edited and at being active in the election and, and doing what I can. It's going to be, I'm not going to go knock on doors this time around, but you know, it's going to be remote calling people, writing letters, you know, making sure people get out and vote on this next election, which frankly, you guys, I think our lives depend on. So, um, and I'm not being hyperbolic about it. <laughs> I mean, literally our lives. Uh, so you will not get any argument here for sure. You know, like we have got to change this or we are all royally. F- so, um, yeah, that's what I'm doing with my time. And, um, I hope it makes a difference. Bueno, Jonathan, muchísimas gracias por pasar un tiempo con nosotros aquí en, en nuestro podcast. De nada. Thank you so very much for all the work that you do on screen, off screen, on stage, off stage. Please, friends and of, of the podcast, be sure to follow Jonathan on his Twitter account. Again, thank you so very much, Jonathan, for spending some time with us. It's been a pleasure. Have a great rest of your week. And uh, let's hope in a few months we're all back to work in in person. <laughs> Again, a big thanks to our special guest this week, Jonathan Del Arco. Now let's find out what happened in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Well, it's a slow news week for Star Trek gaming, but there's one very big talking point from Star Trek Online. In a Stone News blog posted May 19th, Ambassador Kell announced the latest new offerings from Mud's Market. And according to the blog itself, quote, it's one of our craziest bundles ever, end quote. In the usual Mud's Market style, the bundle's listed with two prices. There's the so-called regular price, which is 29,500 zen, or uh, nearly 300 in cash. Then there's the sale price, at which the bundle is available to players until May 26th, which is 14,750 zen, or nearly $150 in cash. So, what does that significant investment get you? That's where this bundle gets really interesting. Because, unlike other MUDS market offerings, this bundle is all about choices. You get to choose three of these six items each time you purchase the bundle. The Amari class heavy escort tier six, a temporal science vessel tier six, account wide reclaim of faction appropriate ship, meaning that once you claim this from this bundle, each character on your account can claim the appropriate faction ship. The temporal destroyer tier six, also account wide reclaim of faction appropriate ship, two Zen store tier six ships at 100% off, 10 ultimate tech upgrades, or one Phoenix prize pack epic token, which will unlock a character locked ship. So when you've purchased the bundle and claimed your three choices, any ships chosen will be forever reclaimable on all of your characters, with the exception of using the Phoenix prize epic token. You can also purchase the bundle as many times as you want. So, purchasing the bundle twice will get you all six choices. And subsequent purchases of the bundle after that will get you more 
tier six ship coupons, ultimate tech upgrades, and epic Phoenix prize tokens. That is, you know, if you want to spend $450 or more on Star Trek Online, Skiffy. Sure, who doesn't? When I first read this, um, you know, one of the first things I think about is, A, are these ships that I'm going to use? Uh, most of the time, my play style sticks to one ship. I will switch ships to pick up a mastery trait or to pick up some type of console that works well with my playstyle. The only time I would switch a ship is if it's like really pretty or way better than what I'm currently using. And the prettiness factor matters quite a bit. I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Space Barbie is the end game. It really is. Uh, and that Temporal Destroyer is like, it's, it's a sleek looking ship. For $150 when this first launches for that limited time, all right, the ships are nice. I don't know that any of the traits are, or consoles are worth that much, but add that to the two Zen store tokens, 100% coupons, and then 10 ultimate tech prizes, which that's reasonable. But, oh, wait a minute. I thought there were, how many Phoenix prize pack tokens are there? One. You get one, but you have to choose three of these things. You only get three out of the six when you buy the bundle. Yeah. You don't get all six. I don't think you can pick the same thing twice. So you can't get three epic prize pack tokens from one $150 purchase. You'd have to buy it three times to get three. I think. Correct. I don't know because we haven't seen the mechanic yet. All right. So just to clarify, when you, when you purchase this bundle, you'll have the option to select the ship in addition to also receiving an epic Phoenix prize token. No. You get three of anything in this list. And I assume you can't pick the same thing more than once. There are six menu items. You can pick three of them. There's a bit of a problem with, with these announcements. And we're seeing this kind of get worse and worse over time. Either somebody's not proofreading or they're rushing this out. And then instead of receiving it with mild apprehension or the typical gamer apprehension of all oh, this is just you know pay to win kind of things what we're dealing with now is massive confusion you turn to the priority one armada and there's confusion there the way it's announced all these things that needed a little more finessing in its description on the blog post in fact it was so confusing that ambassador kel had to post at least once if not twice in different places what the information was was meant to say all that aside that's the marketing side what i'd like to ask the panel here is is this a good deal forget the 300 we all know that the muds market regular pricing is just a shtick i mean but it's, it's i still have an issue with that marketing technique but yes i well we've had that discussion i think a couple of times but we just know that that's how it is and that's what they want to do with this so fine let them, i mean that they can do that but for at the 150 price level your choices are three ships that are out there and they've been out there for a while but they are lockbox or lobby restricted ships we'll get to that here in a second but they but they're old ships that have been out there for a while a coupon for any two ships that are tier six that are not locked box that is currently in the store right now. So that's stuff that's already out there, stuff that's been out there. Or the chance to skip the upgrade weekends and all that stuff and just max out your things ten times. That's enough for a whole... That's a ship's worth of weapons plus a couple of consoles, right? And then a prize pack token for another ship of your choice. So if you get the choice of three of those, is 150 bucks a good deal? My first impression is, yeah, probably. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, on pure math, yes. Because if you had to buy keys or you, or you bought keys to sell them to use the energy right. credits to buy the ships off the exchange, yes, it is a good deal. It's a great deal for some of them. The Temporal Science Vessel and the Temporal Destroyer, you're getting 
three ships for one unlock. It's the same components. It's the same layout. It's the same officer, bridge officer layout, but it's three different frames for three different characters. You can't do that with a lockbox or lobby ship without buying it three times. Here, they're giving them to you for an unlock. One unlock. So here's kind of where the problem comes in. I mean, this we, we think this this could be a good deal at the $150 price point. It seems like that way. If those ships, uh, the destroyer, the, the temporal ships, those are lockbox ships, yeah? The temporal destroyer is a lobby ship. For 900 lobby. Okay, but the temporal science vessel, I'm pretty sure, is a lockbox ship. So they're one or the other. Yes, the temporal the temporal science vessels are lockbox ships. So the problem here is that they've kind of put a price on a lockbox ship, which is sort of a not a good idea. This is not the first time. But it's not a good idea. Because the theory behind the lockboxes is you buy something and then maybe you get the prize. Everybody knows that you people buy them for the chance to win the ships, but you get power-ups and, and experience point boosts and, you know, other other things that are in there that are useful in the game for a buck twenty-five. They've sort of put a price tag on lockbox ships, which is throws dirt on that argument. Are, are you concerned that people will stop buying keys to open lockboxes? Is that what you're concerned with? My concern is twofold. Number one, uh, you know, if their business model is you need the whales to buy lots of keys and stuff to run the game, and that seems to be the way most MMOs go these days, and that's and this that's their business model. This is an opportunity for people to say, I'll just wait until they run the next great sale. I, I see where you're going, but the thing is, is that there are so many ships and so many lockbox ships that I think they're starting to release some in various ways. Like, for instance, the gem, the old Gemidar uh, scout ship, the Tier 5 one, I think, that's now available in the low-buy store, if I'm not mistaken, right? But again, that's, that's the second chance currency from the lockbox, which also has no value, which is the other argument going to want to make with about the low-buy ships. But, I mean, the the second part of my problem is that it, you're getting kind of into the whole it's not gambling because there's no monetary value to the thing that you're trying to get. Oh, I see we, what you're saying. You know, this is... It's, it's a ticky-tack sort of argument, but I have been able to say with a straight face to people that talk about lockbox mechanics, especially in Star Trek Online, hey, it's, it's gambling. No, it's not, because they don't put a strict monetary value on the thing that you might win. They're selling you the power-ups and stuff that you're going to get in the lockbox. You're going to get those things. And you have the chance of winning something. But this is, they're heading towards that, and that, I think, is an argument for the people that want these things to go away. Tread carefully. Here's the other thing. So there's a, yes, there's certainly a concern about putting a value on a product that technically could be considered a gambling device. Buy some. But there's something bigger here. And I think we have to think about that also in terms of how we approach sales like this in a game. A game has to make money. There's no doubt about it. And for its value, $150 is not bad. But we have to consider what's happening right now globally, right? And I think that this might have been an oversight. Players generally right now with these types of bundle sales are saying, we don't want the bundle sale, sell it to us individually. Stop with these bundles and give me the item. Let me buy the item outright. I could see why that's not attractive from a sales perspective. Al Rivera explained that to us when he was last on. However, with an unemployment rate reported by Forbes nearing 15% and could potentially reach depression level rates, and arguably Forbes is suggesting that it's more closer to 20, Right, We're dealing with over 33 million people out of work right now because of COVID-19 who have filed for unemployment in the United States alone, mind you. On top of that, you have landlords and property owners that are taking advantage of this and are predatory, evicting people or thereof if, if there's no protection against that. And so you're asking for players to spend $150 on something. 
I don't think, look, I, I just don't think that's a smart move to do right now. If you're going to try to generate revenue, it might be better in this scenario to attack it with, you know, whatever the analogy you want to think of, a thousand paper cuts, small little pieces versus these massive bundles. I think right now people are hurting and I don't know that many players are going to be able to afford this no matter how handsome the bundle package is. I think you're right, but I also can't fault them for trying, for trying, running their business as they run their business. It's up to each individual player to determine whether they have the means or the desire to own this. And if they can't, don't buy it. And if nobody buys it, they'll come back with a better offer. I mean, that's we've always said vote with your wallets, and that's always proven to be the best way to get around, uh, to accomplish a goal as far as what is available and what's not available. I, I can't really fault them for this. It's I think it's an attractive offer on paper. Uh, COVID-19 set aside and the state of the economy set aside. It's just up to each person to determine whether they want it or whether they can do it. And remember, this, this offer and things like it will survive the current crisis. They may test it in this environment and it may work and it may not. And that will inform future decision making. But this is, even back to my earlier argument, they're trying something here or doing something here that will have reverberations later on. If they're going to keep going down this road of maybe attaching monetary values to the lockbox ships, to having a conversion rate, however loosely connected from low buy to cash, even loosely connected, I think those are the sorts of things that they might want to be careful about. And maybe charging $150 for it prevents it from becoming a widespread problem because not a lot of people are going to buy it. So there's not a lot of people who are going to make a raise a stink about it, maybe. Does it make any difference to you, Tony, that it's actually valued at $300 with a 50% off temporary discount? No. No, no, It doesn't matter what the dollar figure is. There's a conversion rate. Sure, there's a sale rate and a regular price rate, but you're still making connections, however tenuous, to... The, I mean, arguably, this set, you're telling me that a Phoenix prize pack token is worth 50 bucks. Okay, how much dilithium is that? Well, there's a 1 in 200 chance of opening up a, a, epic, a Phoenix prize pack, or you know, 1 in 300, I don't know what the odds are. You multiply that times the number of boxes you're supposed to get, times the hours you spend playing to earn dilithium, and you come up with a tenuous conversion rate of dollars to dilithium. So, and you do the same with the Lobby. Eh, you can do the same with the Zen. Eh. What I'm saying is that if you want to continue having the argument, and this this is a good economics argument here too for the for the pandemic, if you're expecting people to buy keys to unlock these things, and that it costs somebody this much on average, but then you offer this and it costs somebody slightly less or more or whatever different, people start making these economic decisions. And if they're going to gamble for it and it'll only they'll spend $25 gambling on it or they'll spend $150 and get it for sure, these are economic decisions. And I think if they want to continue to preserve that argument that lockboxes aren't gambling, they need to pump the brakes, pump the brakes on, on, on specials like this. I think the most attractive thing about this bundle is the choice, is that I might agree with you, Elijah, 100% if they were just throwing us a bundle that had X, Y, and Z, and that's all you get. In this particular scenario, you get to choose from a limited selection of what you want. So it makes it more attractive. And I feel like people might think they're getting more of their money's worth because they're like, oh, you know what? I really need 
I, I missed that event ship, so I really need an epic token. Or, you know what? I've had my eye on two ships in the Zen store. I could I could do that also. And you know what? I'll throw in uh, the tech upgrades to, to level up my gear on top of that. So I feel like there's the a la carte style. I, I, I feel like it's a much more attractive. It feels more valuable than it might really be. Well, that brings us to our community question for Star Trek Online. Are you interested in the new MUDS Market Bundle? If so, what three options will you choose? Of course, we want to hear from you, so let us know what you think on our website, PriorityOnePodcast.com, our social media pages, or just email us, incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Well, we've already covered Star Trek Online's charity fundraiser for Pop Culture Hero Coalition and United Way Bay Area, but it's worth mentioning a couple of updates tweeted this week to the game's Twitter account. First, they've restocked the $10 bundle, so if you've missed out before, now's your chance. Second, the tweet declared that the groupies bundles have raised nearly $110,000 for the two charities. So a big congratulations to Star Trek Online, Neverwinter, and their players for those efforts. Well, that wraps up Star Trek Online news for this week. Now, let's open Haley Frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, hailing frequencies are open, and we're ready to receive all of your incoming messages. Last week, our first community question was, do you believe the rumor that Jake Cannaval will be the next Kirk? Do you like the casting or prefer someone else? From Twitter, at Jake Teske writes in and says, I hope not. How about the writers for Strange New Worlds establish a new crew and characters to go with Pike, Spock, and number one? I have a hard time believing that they would not do some sort of, like, a little cameo or a little moment with Kirk. Hopefully they'll treat it better than what they did with number one, and he's not just eating a sandwich. But, I don't know, maybe... I think it would do well for fan service if they do it properly. And it'll be one episode, because it's episodic, right? Yeah. It's going to be episodic. Right, yeah, it'll yeah. show. It'll just be a guest one, star for one episode. Just cross paths. Yeah. As long as they do it better than Ghost, the 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 most recent Ghostbusters movie, where it's you know it's not Kirk driving a taxi cab. You know, like I don't 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 give me that. Give us some fan service. Sure, let Kirk make an appearance, but you know, do it well. Do it better than what you did with number one in the season. I'm not talking about short treks. Talking about actually within the season. From Facebook, Ron Kinney writes, Oh joy, another Star Trek prequel we don't need. <laughs> oh no, Ron. I don't know. I think Ron. this is the Star Trek prequel we do need. Has he not heard the I gospel agree. of Enterprise season four? Let me let me share the good news about the Enterprise season four and how it's some of the best Trek ever filmed. Star Trek prequels can be well done. Tony, I agree I with you. I think season four of Enterprise is one of the best seasons of Star Trek. Amen, brother. Except for the first two episodes and the last episode. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Preach it, brother. Woo! Exactly. Amen. Besides, this is not the prequel we need. It's the prequel we deserve. We deserve. And it's the, and it's the prequel us fans asked for, and they're giving us. Yes. Well, that wraps up episode 461 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. But there are more great shows available to you on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Just visit podcasts.roddenberry.com for a complete list. Then be sure to subscribe to them all. And, of course, share them with your friends. But we can't forget to send a special thanks to some of our Patreon supporters like Diana Gunther, Darnell Dwayne Ross, David K. Rutley, Joshua Selig, and Peter Archibald. And here's a reminder of our community questions for this week. Up first, would you like to see Jeffrey Combs play Dr. Boyce? And in gaming news, our question this week is, are you interested in the new MUDS Market Bundle? 
If so, what variation of the menu will you decide on? Captains, it's important to us that you get your voice heard and that you participate in the conversation. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at PriorityOnePod. And if you're still craving more, be sure to spend time with Winters, Cat, me, and the rest of the Priority One Armada. Saturday nights, the Armada broadcasts live to review the latest news from Star Trek Online and the Armada community, including spotlighting some of our amazing members. With regular giveaways, there is something for all Stowe players, whether you are new or a veteran. Follow us on all our social media accounts for broadcast times. And if you'd like to join the Armada, visit PriorityOneArmada.com. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Now, even if you cannot make a financial contribution, the next best thing you can do is to spread the word about this show. Invite your fellow Trekkies to get their weekly roundup of news right here. It's support like yours that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. A very special thanks to our guest this week, Jonathan Del Arco of Star Trek The Next Generation and Picard. Thanks to our audio editors, including Gray, William, Brand, Rand, Daniel, Roscoe, and Skiffy. Thanks to our producer, Jake Morgan, and associate producer, Shane Hoover, with support from Advisory Panda of the Priority One Armada for helping us in organizing and writing up our summary of the weekly headlines from the Star Trek multiverse. Special thanks to our social media manager and special guest host this week, Anthony Cox. Thanks to our graphic artist, Henry Pomper, with support from Jason Smith of the Priority One Armada. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red Alert. Ready weapons. Sue. No. Engage. This is Elijah Intro Sync 1. This is Anthony Intro Sync 3. This is Tony Intro Sync 2. <laughs> this is Skippy Intro Sync 5. Please don't. I, 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 Brandon, I'm sorry. Intro in 3. Anthony is... this. Oh, God. I don't know what the He's number two. <laughs> He'll get it. The little blue screen on the screen will line up. Oh, did I say 3? Our oh, audio editors are very smart. They'll see the little blue screen. No, just start over. It'll be fine. All right, clear your, No, this is a good blooper. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it's it. Great. Oh, God. There are four tracks. Oh. I got through the entire show, <laughs> and then we go back to tracks. do the first segment. All right. And I Intro in three, 
to. This is Elijah. Trek it out. Sync one. Um, go ahead, Anthony. You can be you can be oh. sync two. You're oh. taking you're taking cat spot. He can be sync. Oh my god! I get to be sync. You can be sync two. Take it, man. Yay. You go. You you're the guest. You're our special guest. You can go. Take this is Anthony. Trek it out. Sync two. Oh, that was. It's like it's like falling off a bike. You know, he just 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 get right back on. Let's um. There's still a lot to talk about with Stranger Worlds, like Akiva's thing. So let's save a lot of the conversation till we're done. And so you're saying stop talking? We interrupt this compelling conversation. Stop talking for and then let Anthony go. <laughs> no, we have more to talk about. There's more to talk about. It. So I don't want to. I don't want to wear us down and then us trying to be like, and it's gonna be great. Ah, how many different ways can we say that? Well, isn't this whole show gonna be about how great Stranger Worlds is gonna be? I'm pretty sure that's gonna be the through line. <laughs> Shut up and just go on reading. <laughs> Oh my god! Man, and and I thought you used to get upset at me during the show. Like, wow. Hey, dude, 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 dude! This shut up, man! You're I gonna be like, the good guy in this show. You already called it. Me and Skiffy are gonna antagonize him for the entire like, time. Geez. I should have taken a sentence. I'm so sorry, Elijah. I'm so sorry. I might have double. Genuinely feel bad right now. Goldsman's goal. Goldsman. <laughs> Jeez, they're wonderful. Gold, gold, gold. Here we go. There's a lot of G's and S's in this. Goldsman, Goldsman's, Goldsman's, Goldman. In the usual Mud's Market style, the bundle. Oh no, I'm sorry. And according to the blog itself, quote, it's one of the, it's one, it's one of our craziest bundle. It's one of our craziest bundles ever. Could you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, you should sorry. really try to be the good guy. Skiffy and I just laid the groundwork for you. You're ruining it. You're ruining <laughs> oh, it. Oh, man, he's mad now. All you had to do is put yeah, it on right. cruise control Shh, guys, and coaster sh in. You just had to coast. Wait. Just coast. <laughs> God. All right, come on. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, Skiffy, crap. why? Why? Oh, crap. Okay. No, I can do this. I can do this. <clears throat> and according to the blog itself, quote, it's one of our... And the remarkable editing skills of someone like Roscoe, Ran, who Brandon Dan. assigned this to. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a role model. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.